want to go on from discussing the story because it was exciting. Uh, Definitely, I don't know if you would agree with me, a family film, but with some adult elements for sure. I mean, definitely the director's cut. But the... But the good thing about the adult elements is a lot of them are implied and they're yes. not actually said. They're they're pretty deeply implied. Um, I think you know it's good in terms of that. Again, my first time watching this film, but I really want to kind of segue into how the music really tied into making that movie what it was: the scary parts, the exciting parts, the adventurous parts. Yeah, you you can say what you want to about Danny Elfman and some of his score sounds. He's got the Batman theme. He's got the Beetlejuice theme. There's probably like one other movie, and then like he's you know he repeats on those. But when you need somebody to give you both a whimsical like you know type you know sound, but also like those menacing like you know right before some kind of major scare happens, he's one of the best. Oh yeah, like he just did. He can change the temperature of the room. I swear to God. You know, just with music alone. And he, it it almost made this like a scary Disney film, but it also wasn't too dark. Like the music wasn't too dark. Usually with Danny Elfman, it does get that way. I didn't get that, but I think the music just fit every, every tune he made. It just fit with the film, no matter what the scene was. Um. And what he actually did was he actually recorded all his stuff in because this was filmed in New Zealand. I mm-hmm. mean, because this was that the reason that you know uh, Peter Jackson wanted uh, he he wanted this movie was because he 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 agreed he got him to agree to film it in New Zealand so he wouldn't have to leave and go to Los Angeles because he didn't want to you know work there at the time. Yeah. And so Danny Elfman recorded all of his stuff in Los Angeles and then gave all the tapes. He was nice enough and gave all the tapes to Peter Jackson and entrusted him to mix them in as he needed them. He said, just do He didn't even tell him how to do it. He was just like, you th- do what you think is best for the movie, taking what I've given you. And, what? and that's how they work. So he didn't even <laughs> see the scenes when he made this music? No, he, he he got the he was given the general okay. storyboards and he made them up on the storyboards. The movie was not even close to being ready Holy by the time he, he did this. Yeah, that dude's a <laughs> fucking genius. He is. And then Peter Jackson <laughs> had to work that around the scenes, even though it was like, okay, well, this is probably for this, this is for that, but wow. Yeah, he, he gave him ideas of where he wanted the scenes at, but he said you cut it up, mix it however you need to to make the scene work the best. And like, cause he, and that shows how much he trusted him because a lot of composers would have been like, this is how I intended this. I don't want you to mess with it. But he trusted Peter Jackson enough to say, you know what's going to be best for the movie. You take what I've given you and you mix it, the what you need done. So I think that's pretty, pretty impressive that he had that trust in Peter Jackson to do that. Yeah. God damn, dude. And um, they, Peter Jackson said there was only one scene in the movie, and I can't remember what it is now. I wished I could, that he didn't, that the m- music just didn't fit uh, the scene. He said everything else was perfect. He said whenever he went to put it in there, he said it's exactly what he needed. He said there was just one scene that what Danny recorded didn't exactly fit the scene. And like I said, I can't remember. It had something to do with Patricia and and I, some and I think the discovery of the blade or something. But anyways. Like if Frank Bannister's, you know, the, the one that's got the FB on it, you know, the, the blade yeah. that, uh, that stole. And that was, I think that was the scene. And they said everything else fit, you know, perfect. And that's what they went with. And they even showed on the, the special features, they showed what the scene was like with just the special or the, the sound effects, what it sounded like with just the music and then what it sounded like 
compared combined together. And of course, you know, it takes the sound effects too to make the movie. But I mean, that movie nowhere near the impact without Danny Elfman's score, like not even a, a glimpse of it. Yeah. Um, you know what I just thought of as you're talking about the scene about where she finds the FB blade is that the mom was okay. So the mom did know that Patricia was psycho um, do you, was she hiding the blade from her so she wouldn't kill again, or was she just trying to cover up? I think she was hiding it from her so she wouldn't kill again. She was. She thought that. I mean, just like you get a lot of these parents out there. I mean, of like criminals. I mean, they, they all they see is the the baby they raised. They don't yeah. see the adult that came out of it. So that's what she was still her look. She even says a line like that in the movie. I think it's like you know uh, she's she's still an innocent girl or something. She's saying that at the beginning of the movie. I think like screaming that is you know Johnny, quote unquote, death is attacking quote unquote because yeah. they're not really they're foreplay. Uh, Patricia, and then like you know, she says something to that. So in her mind, Patricia was was uh, the innocent who was you know taken in by Johnny. It was all Johnny. It, she wasn't psycho herself. It was Johnny's fault. That's how she always you know in her mind kind of reconciled that. Or yeah, the mother. I mean, oh my god. Uh, back real quick, just to touch on the music again. If Indeed, Peter Jackson says, okay, well, he did. But there was a scene that he's like, oh, this probably didn't sound the best. I didn't notice it, and I don't know if you did until you saw his, you know, extras oh, or I whatever. Didn't, I, didn't notice, I didn't notice it at all. I mean, it, it's the one thing about a Danny Elfman score is, though, is that it's like it, I feel like it's always there. Like, I mean, he it's brought to the forefront when it needs to be, but it's always in the background yes. somewhere. Like, there's, there's not a lot of silence in the movies. I mean, it's... It's like whenever, uh, you know, we was talking about uh, The Devil's Backbone, there's that one scene that Guillermo said, you know, I wanted it completely silent whenever they're attacking, you know, uh, you know the bad guy in the movie. So that it doesn't like, so, you know, that was his way of saying, you know, I don't, I'm not going to sway it one way or the other if you're supposed to be rooting for or against this guy. And, like, I feel like with Danny Elfman's score, there's always something there. You know, like, there, anytime he's got a score, it's, it's it, just a little bit, even if it's a soft movement that you can barely hear. Yeah, when we get into discussing the entity too, uh, and we talk about the music, I'm gonna bring up how the times where you think there's silence, but there actually isn't. It's just something I noticed, and so we'll, we'll, when we get to there, I'll I'll tell you. But that's definitely okay. something I'm gonna want to touch on. Um, music was amazing in this film. Again, I think it's what turns this film from, you know, don't let your kids watch this. To hey, your kids could watch this. You guys, you you. I don't know, something. It changed, like I said, it lightens the mood of that movie without taking it, it, away the scares. I mean, it's it's not to downplay Danny Elfman because I love the score. It's one of the few scores that I will actually sit down and listen to, Beetlejuice. Yeah. it's It's got that whimsical, playful score to it that, I mean, even if the stuff you're seeing on the screen would actually scare you if yeah. you had like a sharp harpsichord going off, you know, or, or, you know, or as we'll get into the entity, that specific type of music. Whereas in a Danny Elfman film, it's like it's 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 almost like okay, it, what you're seeing is scary, you know, to an extent. But it's we're we're play. It's remember this is a playful movie. It's like he's kind of you know reminding you. It's like it's okay, you know. Yeah. Um, we've already discussed the visuals as far as it looks. I mean, um, like I said, a lot of it stands up. The only thing I would say that doesn't stand up is the you know the the Grim Reaper, and they did what they could back in the day. I mean, you can't. You just got to accept it and move on. I mean. Look it. I'm always going to fall back on this, but this was 1996. And do you remember what John Constantine tried to pull off in 2005? <laughs> 
What do you remember what they tried to accomplish in the house on Haunted Hill with the, you know, ghost Evelyn or whatever her name is, is she's like, you know, dissolving into that horrible, like I would give at least that the, the Reaper in this looked better than that. Yes. So for sure. <laughs> but the Reaper in this did not, was not near as scary as Ghostface, which came out a few months later in Scream. Well, that's true. Um, <laughs> Same concept. Uh, and we'll be discussing him next year, so tune in for that, folks. Yes. <laughs> next season, slasher season. The acting of this movie, we've discussed a little bit, but there's some things I want to point out. Something you don't that you don't realize about John Aston, who played the judge, is that all of his acting is in his eyes. And I mean it really is because oh, they yeah. even mentioned that. He he is covered in so many prosthetics that you're not seeing his real face. He can, I mean, like he can, like if he makes any movements, you can see a little bit of it, but it's very muted. So like, even if he goes like way out there, like it, it I mean, that's, it barely registers because his face is so much, is so done up. But if you look at his eyes, those big expressive eyes that Gomez Adams had, and he sells, he, he, if he's happy, if he's upset, he's that it's all in his eyes. It's the know? eyes and the voice, honestly. Well, that too. I mean, he modulates his voice, but I mean, he, he just, I mean, if you, especially if you look at the makeup, like without the ghost effect, like they've got in the special features, he just, those huge, you know, eyes he's got, like he's very expressive. And that's exactly the reason Peter Jackson wanted him in the movie for that part. He said, we've got to have an actor who's got like the, who's got eyes that can sell everything we're needing to sell. And they look and he's like, it's John Aston. That's who we're getting. And he did it, you know, um, you know, we're talking about Michael J. Fox. I mean, Michael J. Fox is a class A actor to me. I mean, the guy's good. I mean, really good. Yeah. Um, he he sells the drama. He he's got comedy timings. He can you know kind of time that stuff. I mean, and then I thought Trini held her own in this. I yeah. mean, I, I didn't. I wasn't uh, super aware of her, but she did very well. Uh, and then, I mean, Jake Busey's hamming it up, but that's what the part needed. So I, I'll give him credit for the acting that he did. He 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 kind of he kind of played himself. <laughs> he played his dad. Let's let's yeah, be that that's true. <laughs> I okay now specifically about Jake Busey. And granted, they had a younger version of Patricia. I think they did an amazing job of holding up his age if you will because she was 14 or 15 so she was a teenager you know young teenager and he's probably early 20s maybe late yes. teens you know like early adulthood and everything mm -hmm. i get it it fucking happens okay guys you know whatever we know that there's a weird age thing going on but and i know he's the same person but i think in terms of how they combed his hair to make him look like he was from that time era and kept that going and then it worked obviously a lot better with older Patricia who's now of age you know oh yeah of course and then I mean giving D Wallace her credit I mean she played the psychopath perfectly I, you know for the scene and that but she's the kind of actress that I mean you see why Rob Zombie you know likes her as like an actress because she's Rob Zombie likes over I mean let's be he likes over the top and and she she does that so um, not that that's bad. I mean, the part, you know, it worked in this movie, but that's, that's, she's, she's good at doing over the top. She's also good. I mean, if you saw her past films, she was good playing like more subdued characters back in her early days, but like she just got, I mean, 
more and more people, you know, there's like, we want D Wallace. We want you to act as crazy, you know, as out there as you can. And she's like, whatever, you're paying me a paycheck. I'll do what you need. You know? Yeah. Get it, girl. <laughs> I don't know. And I think then, it, I mean, it all I, worked really well. And the direction clearly, clearly a great director because I mean, great actors, I get it, you know, but seriously, when you mix the two together, you really do get very close to perfection. So, and then give credit to the, the the other two guys, Cyrus and Stewart. I mean, they they played their comedy parts extremely well. We'll get into the trivia here in a second. You'll see why I say that because they actually wrote their characters. Oh I mean, my god, legit. So, you want to just go into the trivia let's, while we're at it? Yeah, let's roll into the trivia. So. Charles Starkweather, the real-life serial uh, killer referenced in the movie, killed 11 people and two dogs. Uh, what? Row, Fuck uh, him. During, yeah, during a nearly two-month killing spree. This is a tangent, but Charles Starkweather is the boogeyman to Stephen King. Every Stephen King, you know, killer-type character is based on Charles Starkweather. Goddamn. You know, that's a little bit trivia for you. Um, he, it was, it happened when he was a kid, he read about it in the newspapers and it scarred him for life. And that's why we've got Stephen King's it and some other, you know, and all the other stuff that he did. So I guess Starkweather's kind of the inspiration for our modern day, you know, nightmares. Um, so anyways, his 14 year old girlfriend, Carol Fugate, uh, accompanying him, uh, for, and, uh, and anticipated most of his killings. Uh, he was caught, tried, and convicted, and executed by electric chair, which if you'll notice, and, and that's one good thing I love about the, the design of the character in this, if you look at the top of Johnny Bartlett's head, you can see where the, the cap that they put on the electrical chair fried and killed him. I didn't you even think about that. that. No, I did not notice. Yeah, it's like this big black, you know, like burn on the top of his head where they put the cap down on him. Um, so anyways, uh, in a 17-month span, he, you know, he was... Uh, Caught, tried, convicted, and executed. Uh, Fugate was sentenced to life in prison, but was paroled after serving 17 years. So, obviously, Starkweather and Carol were the inspiration for Patricia and Johnny. Uh, Johnny Bartlett is actually named after Velda and Marion Bartlett, the second and third victim of Charles Starkweather, who murdered, you know, the 11 people in, the, in Nebraska and Wyoming. And uh, Carol, whose uh, precise role in the killings is not, is, is not known, uh, the story has been dramatized in Badlands, uh, a 1973 film, and other movies. Um, in the in this film, you know Johnny named Starkweather as his role model because you know he's always mentioned. He, he asked Patricia, you know, how many did Starkweather have, and that's yeah. he's trying to beat the record, basically. <laughs> that that's um, that that's pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> psycho, yeah. but and here's the. Th- Here's, I'm going to give credit to this. Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson came up with this script, uh, at least the basic form of it. I mean, they added all this stuff in later. While they were out walking uh, together, I mean, they just spending time as a couple. They were going to walk to, like, one of the local stores, and, and, and I think this is so cool as a couple. They were just like, hey, let's brainstorm our next movie because they were, like, knee-deep in, in heavenly creatures at that time, and they wanted a break. So they were just like, let's, let's do something fantastic. What, what can we do? And they just came up with an idea for this on the way to get some groceries one day. That's, you know, what the I, fuck? I, I admire that kind of creativity. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Oh, my God. <laughs> so um, the weird thing is that Starkweather and, his, and the victims, the two Bartlett victims, are buried together in the same cemetery in Lincoln, Nebraska. That's kind of, that'd be kind of shitty, you know, to be buried next to your killer, but it is what it is. Or not next to them, but at least around them. 
Um, the first name of Patricia Bradley, D. Wallace's character, provides a hint at her criminal past, revealed later in the film. She is named after Patty Hearst, uh, a girl who was taken hostage by an urban guerrilla group, then brainwashed into sympathizing with her kidnappers and helping them rob banks. So, like, that's that's why she's named Patricia, is after Patricia Hearst or Patty Hearst. Yes, of the Hearst, um, of the Hearst family. Uh, Hearst Castle, also out here in, uh, well, Hearst Publishing, isn't it? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. She did come from like a well-to-do family. Oh, very wealthy. And it is very, very, very much discussed that she was not a victim, that she was indeed a very willing, (laughs) this, uh, this, the spirit was willing in her and (laughs) that she was able to get off so easy one, because she's a billionaire's daughter at the time Two. um, yeah. I mean, how easy is it to, especially as a woman back when she was, you know, when she was indicted on this uh, to just be like, yeah, I, I didn't want to do any of that. They forced me and I was so confused. Oh, yeah, and, playing... mm-hmm. and they said that That's a lot still... of women got away with a lot of crimes doing that back in the day. So don't oh, tell me. There's, there's so many uh, female killers who got away with or murders, robbers, whatever got away with it. Cause either the guys couldn't believe that they would do that. Cause they're the, you know, the, the sensitive, you know, uh, you know, uh, sex or whatever you want to say, you know, like it was, it was revert. It was a kind of a sexism that protected women when they, you know, it, yeah. was, it was really bad. So yes, uh, um, Patty Hearst was able to get off very, very easily. Um, and nobody really knows the full true story, honestly. That's craziness. I mean, I, I've heard some things about that, uh, you know, about that story. I think Stephen King maybe worked her into one of his stories too, to be honest with you. I, yeah. I remember, everything's eventual or something like that. She was in, um, <clears throat> the Russian cannibal creep that's referred to by Bartlett because there's a scene between him and Pat or Patricia where he's like, uh, uh, you know, 40 that beats that Russian cannibal creep or something is actually, uh, Andre Chica, uh, Chikatilo, uh, who is a Ukrainian. Oh so, my yeah, God. I know more, way more about him, but I that's, do. that's what that's referencing. You have to know what Chikatilo is from. I, I know what it's from. I'm, I'm letting you take the reins oh, on this. Oh, time I suck. Mean, you know, yeah, you listen to time <laughs> suck way more than I do because I know that they bring Chikatilo up all the all time. All the time. Life. What is big deal? He's got a shame cock, by the way. Apparently, he can't he can't get it up, so he is not doing any ghost fucking as far as we are aware. <laughs> and I think that's I what caused think- him to murder, which, I mean, I, that... I hear that's a legit thing. A lot of these serial killers from back in the day, a lot of them had issues with their thingies, and uh, which is very unscientific for me to pronounce it that way. But whatever, I said what I said, and it it drives them crazy. And I that is, it's got there's got to be some scientific explanation behind that. Well, the, a lot of them also have like you know family issues that lead that, but they that all leads into that that what you're talking about too. Oh it's yeah, like a whole thing. I mean, you know, um, but I just thought that was kind of cool that you know he they had another reference to another serial killer, you know, in the yeah. movie that and not know, one that's well, super well known. I mean, he is, but <clears throat> not really. He's not definitely not popular in the circuit, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's not one of the big name ones. I mm-hmm. mean, other than Time Suck, I wouldn't have known who that was. One hundred percent. Uh, the film was not released to theaters in Tasmania, where devils are at, I've been <laughs> told. Uh, 
in Australia because uh, uh, they did have like a real life killing uh, there called the Port Arthur Massacre that mirrored the film's content, and oh, it shit. happened not long before the film's release. So they was like, no, we're not going to, you know. So it's kind of crazy that stuff like that happened. After yeah, they made this movie. I bet you that made it uh, for some of the locals that might have made it more enticing to want to see it. it. It could have, but then they always. But you have like the you know the censor boards always assuming that it's going to play bad or whatever. I mean, hell, they uh, they pulled Donnie Darko like from its original release right after nine eleven because they you know they thought that somehow that seeing the the scene in the movie where he shoots Frank the Bunny would like somehow trigger people during that time, and I'm just like that's not even remotely related to anything, you know, that happened at nine 11. So I, whatever, you know, but yeah, they do what they do, you know, <clears throat> uh, in the special features making of documentary, both Peter Jackson and actor Jim Fife shared their own experiences with the supernatural, uh, Fife being the one who played Stewart shared a story where his, he was with his daughter who was then a toddler and they were down in the basement of this apartment building, the real old one. And that's where the laundromat was at. And they were, you know, he was down there doing laundry and his daughter just happened to wander in the next room. Well, the room was completely empty and like he, he sees that she's missing. So he goes and looks for her and she's just standing there staring into a corner, like super intent on one corner of the room. And he asked her, he's like, uh, honey, what, what are you looking at? And she's like a baby. I, do you see the baby? And he said that his hair just like stood up on the back of his neck. And he's like, uh, <laughs> and this is how bad it was. It's like, he went upstairs, like he took his daughter with him. They went upstairs, got the, got, you know, his wife, the, the mom and like brought her down there and like, you know, put the girl back in the room and she went right back to the same corner, said the baby was right there. And they said that it started moving at one point and she was tracking where it was moving with her eyes and telling them, it's like, Oh, the baby's there. The baby's right there. Oh my God. And he said, eventually he said, eventually she stopped. And just a big smile on her face and just waddled out of the room and that was it. But you know uh uh-uh. <laughs> that's the kind of that's that's the kind of stuff that gives you nightmares as a parent. Like, that's some straight really up GTFO to shit right there, okay? <laughs> like we can't live here anymore. Uh yeah. Um but yeah, the baby was in the corner and as we know from Patrick Swayze, you don't put babies there. You do, do not put don't. babies in the corner. <laughs> Um, Peter Jackson actually shared a story too. Uh, he was with Fran Walsh and they were living in a hundred year old apartment building at the time. I think this was before, uh, heavenly creatures came out and, um, he had slept in Fran was off preparing coffee for the morning or something. And he gets to looking and there's a woman standing in the doorway to the room. Oh fuck. And no, he's, he's freaking out. He's like, and, and, and he's, and he said he looked at the woman's face and her face was caught in a perpetual scream. Like it was no. frozen as if she was screaming. Okay. Wait, what is that called? What is that called? What is that called? It's that um, scary thing. We talked about it in the ring. Oh, death rictus. Yes. <laughs> it was that. No, fuck that. Fuck. No, fuck this. So she was she was looking at him like that, not making a sound. She comes toward him. He's freaking out, but he says he but he's also feeling better about it because like in his mind he thought he was getting robbed by a real life <laughs> human. So it being a ghost, that was a little bit better to him. <laughs> and and he said that she glided toward him, glided past the bed and disappeared through a wall. Now, that would have been one thing. But when his wife came in there and saw it, he was visibly shaken and pale. She said, 
what's wrong? You know, what'd you see? And uh, he told her, and before she even, uh, before he even got through saying anything, he's like, she's like, wait a minute. Did, did she have a, uh, he, he, he said he saw a woman. She's, she interrupted him and said, did she have a scream on her face? Like she was frozen in, in a scream. He said, yeah. How did you know? And she's like, oh, I've seen her before. And uh-uh. she described, and this would be, this would be even worse. She woke up in the middle of the night one time when she was by herself and the woman was standing at the end of the no, bed. fuck you. With a scream on her face. <laughs> looking down at her and just stared at her. I hate you. I want to go home. (laughs) I don't like this at all. I don't like this. And uh, we don't know, but like, fuck, you just would. Oh my God. Do you know? Poor Noah would be tormented, not by the screaming woman. He'd be tormented by the screaming Latina. That'd be like, if you don't get me out of this fucking house, I'm going to burn it down for us. I, I heard this story and like my um, right now my hair is standing on my on its end like uh, that's the reason these these movies get to me is because I believe and like Peter Jackson believes that's the reason he wanted to make this movie because he saw that ghost and so did Fran and they were like we believe in them let's make a movie about them you know no. <laughs> I hate them I hate them they're so dumb <laughs> um now there's a I mean this has nothing to do with this but it's a tangent I'm gonna throw it in here because it's a good time to tell it uh. Johnny Cash in a in an autobiography about him talks about how his place that he had in in the Caribbean uh, was actually haunted, and that it wasn't just him and the family that noticed it. It was actually guests because it was a regular occurrence. They had this the ghost of like a former maid, and she wasn't one that was hot and ready to get down, unfortunately. <laughs> but, um, but she would come into the the serving room. And like, you know, and then like everybody would see her and she had like the old plantation style clothes on. And then she would like, you know, she would move around and then she would like go back through the wall that she came in on. And like he saw it all the time. His family saw it all the time. And so did the guests that they had there. Oh, my God. Okay. Would you stay if if that's what you had? <laughs> I wouldn't. But, I, you know, like, you know, I... I'm one of those people that like I was surprised at the reaction I had to what what could have been a ghost the other day because if it, if I'd even thought about it you know before then I would have probably been creeped out by it but I'm just like I don't know <laughs> it's but yeah if it'd been in my house for sure 100 percent oh let, let, we got to get the we got to get going the second you start hearing little feet pitter pattering down the hall or kids laughing you're gonna GTFO I just know it listen. <laughs> I had I had stuff happen at the last place we lived in. Oh, I'm not even joking and with you. And you GTFO'd. And, well, I'm no longer living there. I'll give yeah. you that. But, I mean, it was like the, the scariest one, the one that got me, was that in the basements where, you know, I had my game system, I had my, you know. What uh, are basements? Those aren't real. <laughs> so, um, but anyways, I, so in the basement, that's where I had my media room, and that's where I, you know, spent a lot of time, you know, was just down there watching movies or whatever. Well, I just got through playing some video games that night with some buddies. It was fairly late. I went uh, and I was I was in the you know half bath that was off to the you know side or whatever. And thankfully, I was finished and washing my hands because I was standing there and all of a sudden, right over my like right shoulder, I hear like you know somebody doing that you know like behind me. Yeah, I jumped. And I looked around and I was, uh, you know, I was kind of smiling because, you know, my wife is, was notoriously bad for like sneaking up on me in the basement down there. (laughs) And like, uh, and I looked and she was nowhere around. Oh, hell no. I, 
hairs on the back of my neck. I, I simply just walked upstairs. I looked, she was kind of laying there. She looked at me. She's like, well, what's going on? I was like, you went downstairs just a day ago. She's like, no. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and yeah, that it was, I mean, that wasn't the only one, but that, that happened. And I was just like, okay, there's something in this place. That's great. Oh my God. No, thank you. <laughs> no gracias. Um, yeah. So, um, so it happens. I mean, you know, uh, people can be skeptical, uh, skeptical of it and not believe, but I, if, if you've ever had it happen to you, it'll change your tune on that. Yeah. Big time. Um, Melanie Linsky and Kate Win- Winslet are visible on the cover of the serial killer video that Lucy watches recreating a famous photo of the real life characters from heavenly creatures, um, which is Peter Jackson's previous film. And by the way, he is a sir and a friend uh, is a dame because they have been knighted and whatever, I think, you know, according to the, whatever the, the royalty does over in that way. So there you go. Um, uh, Melanie Linsky is the, is actually in the movie. She's the deputy taking uh, Lucy Linsky's statement at the police station. And obviously Lucy's last name is a reference to the actress as well. That's the reason they, she's named that. Um. Danny was so Danny Elfman was so impressed with Peter Jackson's previous movie, Heavenly Creatures, that he offered to do the score for one of Jackson's next movies and agreed to this movie without even knowing what it was about. Wow. <clears throat> and and Le- Heavenly Creatures opened up a lot of doors for Peter Jackson because it wasn't just uh, Elfman that got on board with him. He it was actually uh uh, Chai McBride, who played Cyrus, only agreed to be in the movie because he saw he originally turned it down. They they they, you know, they had him in there. He rehearsed as Cyrus. He didn't like the fact that his character really wasn't in the movie that much and didn't have any lines. And that's something I, you know, that and what happened with that was is that that Peter Jackson and um, Fran Walsh admitted that they they were not very good at writing, you know, like comedic dialogue. Uh, especially considering, you know, it was, they were writing it for an American audience and they were, you know, they're Kiwis. So like the humor wouldn't have came across the same way. And so what their intent was, was that they would hire very funny improv comedians and have them basically come up with their own lines. And then like, just, you know, whatever was the funniest they would keep in the movie. That way it was kind of a shorthand way of them not having to try to create dialogue that they were not very good at. Yeah. And so Chai didn't know this. He saw the initial thing and he said, I'm not in it and the lines are not that good. So I'm out. Well, he was later, he watched heavenly creatures and he saw how good of a movie it was. And he was like, damn, I, I probably need to be in this movie if I can. Cause this guy can legit direct a movie. And, and Peter Jackson hadn't found anybody else at the time. So he calls him back up and he's like, listen, we didn't tell you this the first time we meant to, it, it got slipped by. We want you to help us create the character Cyrus. And when he heard that and he'd already was, you know, pumped up by seven heavenly creatures anyways, he's like, fine, I'm in your movie. Let's do this. So he wouldn't have got in it if it hadn't been for heavenly creatures. Uh, uh, Michael J. Fox was actually, uh, he, he was on the fence. And if he hadn't saw heavenly creatures, he wouldn't have done the movie, but he happened to see it in Toronto and he agreed to do it. So that's something else that, that kind of, so heavenly creatures just was the big time movie that like got Jackson where he needed to be at. Which is funny. I've never Um, seen it. I've never seen it. And I have never heard of it. I've never seen it either, but it's basically based on real life. Like uh, true crime is what it is. Like it's, it's, and it's supposed to be very well acted and very well done. Like, I mean, these two sisters basically end up, I think killing their parents or something like that. And it was like a crime that was big in like that area of the world, you know, New Zealand, 
uh, Australia, one of the, I think it was New Zealand, and like it, you know, got pretty famous, and and that's what the movie's about. Um, <clears throat> uh, when Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson were writing part of the part of the drill sergeant in the graveyard, they wrote the part as a spoof of Arlie Ermy. They they actually wrote it as a spoof of his character from Full Metal Jacket, with the intention of getting an actor from New Zealand for the role, but they didn't feel any of the actors who auditioned were right, and they just said, hey. We want, it, we want it to be like Arlie Ermey, so let's just get Arlie Ermey. So that's how he got in it. <laughs> um, uh, the shooting script originally included another character the cemetery called The Gatekeeper. Uh, it was a big chubby angel who would be acting as the cemetery's guardian. Now, they've got images of this in the deleted scenes and is the goofiest looking character ever and i and and there's a reason that peter jackson cut it first because when he looked at the final runtime he's like i gotta cut something he's like what's the first thing i can cut and even though they spent all this time on prosthetics they had this big fat baby or whatever that was naked basically <laughs> i mean it, it, you could see it's like you know junk down there oh my god and it had these and you had these little cherub wings. It stood like twice as tall as uh, Michael J. Fox, by the way. That's how big it was. And about four times as wide. It was, you know. And so anyways, it was supposed to be the, the early army was like the, the initial, you know, lookout for the cemetery. And this was his enforcer. It's like big bad, basically, to help, you know, keep bad stuff out of the cemetery. And, um <clears throat> Anyways, whenever he got to, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, it's a really, it doesn't fit with any other ghost designs because they're all like people and like this thing's this big puppet, like, you know, mascot thing. And so when he was getting a look, he's like, well, that creature doesn't look like the rest of them. So to make the movie consistent visually, let's just cut that out of the movie. And I mean, I think it was probably pretty good because, I mean, Arlie Ermey was enough, in my opinion, as, you know, the, the gatekeeper of the cemetery, and, I, and this thing looks really weird. Like, if you've ever seen this movie Dead Alive, there's a, there's a scene at the end of the movie where because the character's whole thing in that movie is the fact that he's he's a mama's boy and, like, he, you know, he's just spent and his mom's like this big monstrous like zombie at the end of the movie and he actually has she actually shoves him back up in her vagina you know and like back into the womb at the end of the movie and like he has to like bust his way out and it's like supposed to be symbolizing that he's finally out from under his mother's thumb or whatever but anyways like she's this big monstrous looking thing and like this creature looked like it should have fit in dead alive if you've ever seen that it's, yeah it's really weird looking um, he also made a weird movie called Meet the Fleeples, which was like a uh, Sesame Street if the characters fucked and they, they killed each other. So uh, Wait, what was it, it called? It, it, it would have fit Meet the Fleeples or something like that or, or the the Feebles or something. Yeah, uh, um, I think Noah and I have seen that. Yeah, it's 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 really weird, but uh, this creature looks like it would have fit that too. It, it, it's just a weird-looking thing. Um uh, Joe Mantegna actually auditioned for the role of uh, Milton Dammers, but they had uh, uh, Jeffrey Combs uh, in mind because he had worked on Reanimator, and uh, they loved that mo movie so much that they asked their uh, casting director, Victoria Burroughs, to find out whether he was still available and working, and, uh, and whenever they found that he was, they signed him up. And um, <clears throat> uh, so Jeffrey Combs came up with all the looks for his character, he was the one that suggested whenever he started researching the character that he have like an Adolf Hitler type haircut. <laughs> um, and he said that he, his reasoning for that was the fact that Milton Dammers was so like he had endured so much for his country that he was very like patriotic. So he kind of felt like that nationalistic, you know, like I'll do anything for my country type character kind of like symbolized how Hitler was in a way. And that's kind of what influenced him. 
um, he actually went to WIDA, you know, Peter Jackson's effects company, and told him he wanted appliances put behind Dammer's ears to make him like stand out more, make him, you know, like like really pop out from his head, so he looked goofier, you know, that way too. <laughs> and um, he was the one that decided the uh, several of Dammer's chest tattoos because they they asked him, they's like, which ones do you think he would have? And he was the one that picked out all those ones that were on his or most of the ones on his chest. They look like scrapes, and, or not scrapes, but they look like like carvings more than anything. Yeah. Well, they're, yeah, that's what they are, but they're, you know, uh, they were, they were carved in more of a scar than yeah. they are a tattoo, but he was the one that picked them. And he was also the one that came up with the idea that he would have like the swastikas on his, uh, on his palms or whatever, which yeah. that's in the, the, the director's cut. I don't think that's in the regular movie. Oh, okay. Yes. And I did see <clears> that. And, um, he was the one and, and he also wore black contact lenses because he's got like, kind of like, uh, I think they're pale green or he's got like greenish brown eyes or something. And he wanted Dammers to make, have like these dark, like, you know, darker eyes, kind of like he's demonic or something. So they made him like black contact lenses for the role also. Cause he couldn't see. And that's probably the best because without his glasses, he literally couldn't see what he was doing when he was doing the rehearsal. Oh, okay. <laughs> for Dammers. Um, now this is interesting. This was originally planned as a tales from the crypt movie. <clears throat> But executive producer Robert Zemeckis, who, you know, was the one that helped make uh, Back to the Future, uh, decided it should stand on its own and not be part of the series. He, he liked the script so much. He's like, you know, we've, we've got some other movies in the, you know, Tales from the Crypt series. I think this should be its own thing. I don't see this being um, scary enough to be a Tales from the Crypt scene, you know? Well, I agree with you to a certain extent, but how scary was Bordello of Blood when you get right down to it? True. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, if you think about along the lines of it, now it was it was not on the same par as a uh, uh, demon knight, but I mean, you know, um, I, but if you watch the movie, it actually does have like tales from the crypt, like you know the way the camera moves and stuff like that. It's got like a comic book vibe to it. Yeah. You know? Um, and also Robert Zemeckis is the main reason that that uh, Michael J. Fox was even on the you know the roster because you know he knew whenever they came to him they they suggested peter jackson and fran did they's like we would like michael j fox to do this part and he said well i you know since he had such a close working relationship with him from back to future he's like let me talk to michael and he said i'll you know i'll i'll get him to consider it and and like i said michael was still on the fence if it hadn't been for heavenly creatures but he saw that and he's like okay you know he's like i like what he's doing and whenever he actually met Peter uh, Jackson and Fran Walsh, he actually like stayed with them at their house. Like that's where they kept him up at, at their big, they, they had a huge house at that point because heavenly creatures did pulled in so much money. And uh, he actually took care of their son, uh, Billy Jackson, uh, who was actually in the movie. He's that little kid that Cyrus and Stuart are talking to and they get him to smile and agree to being with them on the haunting of the, the rich lady at that, at that point in the movie. That's actually uh, Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh's son in the movie. Oh my God. Um, they, uh, uh, Peter Jackson and uh, Robert Zemeckis unsuccessfully campaigned to have the film released in October for Halloween week. The studio wanted it for a summer release and which backfired as we said, and they didn't do it so well in the gross earnings. Uh, the film was originally meant to be, this is, this is terrible. The, the movie was meant to be PG 13, but the MPAA uh, thought the movie was too intense 
uh, for the rating and gave it an R. And no matter how much Peter Jackson edited the movie to try to get it to down to PG-13, they would not let him have it. They kept saying, nope, it's an R. You'll never get anything less. So, <clears throat> and some of the reasons for it was stupid shit, like the, uh, the door getting shot by Patty's gun, you know, just seeing the, the bullet or, you know, the way the bullets penetrate the door. Yeah. That somehow made it an R rating. That. Yeah, that's and they were stupid. Like, and uh, Jackson, uh, being angry that uh, that he had to tone, or tone, him, tone himself down for nothing, it was too late in the movie for him to go back and add in more gruesome stuff for the rest of the movie. He was already at the point where it was like for where Dammers was getting killed, but he's like, "Fuck it! If I can't get an R, if I can't get a PG thirteen, then we're going hard into this R." And that's the reason that Dammers' death scene in the movie is more graphic, where he gets his total head blown off, is because originally they were just going to have him take a shot to the chest, and then like you know to get the rating down. And when, since he never got the PG thirteen, he's like, "Nope, his head's getting blown off." And then he said, "He's like, I wished I could have added in more shit to begin the movie to kind of make." get more gruesome in that sense yeah if it was already going to get the r rating yeah um and, and the tv cut apparently features the original death scene where he just gets shot in the chest but still it's it's not considered a pg-13 and uh danny elfman even like argues for this because they have him on there and he said it's the dumbest thing he said that he took his 11 year old daughter at the time to watch the movie and she absolutely loved it and he said that he and she asked him beforehand, is there anything that you have to worry about? And he said he'd only seen preliminary viewings, of, you know, like the preliminary shots. He didn't see the whole thing before he went. So he told her, he's like, I don't remember there being anything that's a problem. And so he took her and she loved it. And they both, when they walked out of the theater, was like, why was that? You know, he being his 11 year old daughter was asking why that was yeah. considered, a, you know, such a big thing. <laughs> I, I don't get um, it. <laughs> I don't either, but you know that the the censor board gets uh, hung up on stupid shit all the time. So I, I don't know what to say. Um, <clears throat> from the half point uh, of the film onwards, Lucy wears only one outfit: the pink shirt that she's wearing, like the the sweater. Uh, it eventually became a running joke throughout the film, uh, such that on the last day of the schedule, the crew presented her with a Barbie doll that looked just like her, and it had the uh, the pink sweater on. <laughs> And there was a scene, she surprised Peter Jackson because there was a scene at the end of the movie where he's, he, he was filming her and he, he cut in and he's like, Lucy, you know, start your line. And she stepped away from out of the, the view of the camera, held up her Barbie doll and was just like moving it around. It's like, hello. I'm, oh, my know, God. <laughs> I'm Lucy Linsky. I'm doing, you know, and like he was like, he said he was dying laughing. He's like, at least she was in on the joke. Yeah. Um. Trini Alvarado, and this is bad. Trini Alvarado, who played Lucy, sustained so many bruises working on the film, receiving new ones almost every day, that the makeup department would take pictures for future reference. Uh, the scene where she's running from Dee Wallace, she is supposed to have removed the key from the door and flee as the door slams behind her. However, on the day that she that that they the, the take that they ultimately had in the movie, she was a little too slow, and her hand was almost crushed as the door slammed together. And they they mention this too, and they show it, and like they showed both sides of it. She barely gets her hand through the door before it slams on it, and she's sitting there, and then she shoves a key in there real quick and like finishes it up. You can tell that she's kind of a little bit shaky, which yeah. is good from the scene because you know she's supposed to be running from D. But then they they focus in on her and they they ask her, "Are you all right?" And she's like. Phew thankfully you know like she's out of breath because she realizes what about ha what was about to happen yeah um and um 
they also show the reason that she's so bruised up is because she, and this is, I mean, more power to her. She's a real trooper. Every time that Dammers or somebody had to throw her in the movie, she told them, she said, nope, throw me harder. She's like, I can take it. And like, there's a literal scene in the movie of Jeffrey Combs, like that scene in the, the hospital where he slams her up against like this uh, wall or whatever. And they do it like three different times. And each time he hits her harder against it. And I'm just like, Jesus, like, I mean, she, she was, she was for it. I mean, like she was a trooper. Like she just went with it. She's one of those. <laughs> Uh, Weta Digital, Sir Peter Jackson's uh, visual effects company, had to extend their capacity from one to 35 computers in order to meet the visual effects demands for this movie. Uh, Jackson used it as an excuse to direct the fantasy movie afterwards and chose Lord of the Rings as his <laughs> next film. Uh, literally, he was sitting there and he was like, well, I've got 35 computers. What am I going to do with them? He's like, I, I got to do something big. And he's like, let's let's go totally fantastical. And then he was literally this. That, I mean, I, I got to give the guy credit for his like thinking. I mean, like the, it's the one movie or book series everybody said was unfilmable. And he just sat there and said, no, fuck it. We're doing the Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's hold my beer. It, <laughs> hold the beer. Um <clears throat> He states that the Frighteners provided a good bridge between his independent film and Heavenly Creatures and Lord of the Rings because it was like him working with computers and getting used to the bigger budget and effects. You know how many, you know how much information those computers held, all 35 of them? As much as a cell phone does now? 1.6 terabytes. Oh, that's sh it. That's, oh my, 35 <laughs> fucking computers. <laughs> 1.6 and, and they talk on there about how much room that was. I'm like, geez. I was like, okay, that's how how things it have took changed. 35 <laughs> computers though. Like, how do you work? It was 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 an individual person working on them at any given time or what? Oh, they the film crew or the the effects uh, crew that Weta was working on this. They worked themselves to death because they because. Here's the thing. When Universal told them that they had a summer release, they wasn't, that was in the spring. They didn't have the movie done. So they had to turn and say, fuck, we've got to do everything in like a month's time. Oh, my God. So they had to crunch. Like, they, they said those guys were working almost 24 hours a day to get that movie done. Damn. Yeah. They, it, it, I mean, you got to give them credit. They even had, like, they were showing it. They even had like a, uh, a program set up on their computers that they designed themselves. I, I, they called it Spook Set. And it was like a special like setting that they could take like the footage of the actors because they filmed on blue screen instead of green screen for this movie. Uh, they took the ghost actors next on their blue screen and they uh, actually, and they had like a setting on the computer that automatically adjusted the transparency and the color effects of the ghost so that they matched the scene better. Like oh. they, and it was just like a, it was like a little drop down bar. They just had to adjust it because they had to do it so many times. They, they made their own program up. Fuck <laughs> dude. <laughs> He showed how they did the scene, though, where they made, like, Michael J. Fox and some of the other ghosts, like, fall through floors and stuff like that. Now, that was a painstaking mess. They had to sit there and take every frame of the scene with a, with Michael J. Fox in it and, and, like, highlight where his legs were at or whatever part was supposed to be disappearing through the floor, and they had to individually remove it. And they had to do that for every single second that he was moving in the scene. No, thank um, you. Yeah, it was, I mean, I even if the effects are dated, these guys worked their ass off. So yeah. there's no, you know. Well, they had to work that. with what they had for at the time, which was pretty much nothing because it sounds like they created what they had. Oh, 
their computer, that, that program they had, Spook said, looked like an old DOS program. Like if you booted up DOS and like it was, you know, had even had the old windows, like, you know, the colors were even like, you know, the old, old computers. Like you could, you know, real fuzzy looking and like, you know, it, it really dated stuff. Oh, my God. Um, I was going to say, too, they, uh, I mean, it just what they had to work with. I mean, when they were talking about like they had just the colors for the ghost, like anytime the ghost was in a scene with like any kind of different lighting, it would, it would have changed the color of the ghost. So that's why they had to go in there and adjust it all the time to keep that consistent, like light blue, whitish look to them or whatever. Because if they were in a scene that's something that had a lot of green in it or something, they would look green. So they had to go in there and adjust all that stuff. It sounds like bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like bullshit to be honest with you, but they, they pulled it off. Um, and, and it gave them a lot of, I mean, and honestly it gave them the experience they needed to make the Lord of the Rings. We would not have the Lord of the Rings without this movie at all. Yeah, That's true. I but mean, Oh my God, what a drastic difference in, in CGI though, from this to Lord of the Rings. Well, that's true. Speaking of Lord of the Rings, let's bring this up. Cause this is the news. Uh, so Peter Jackson, uh, was consulted by the, the idiots who made the, the Lord of the Rings, the power of the rings for Amazon. Uh, he, they, they came to him originally and they said, would you like to produce this? Because, you know, obviously you made the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and we wouldn't be here without you. And he was like, sure, send me the scripts. And uh, they left him on read. They, they ghosted his ass. As soon as they, they got him to say, okay, I'll, let me look at him, that was the one thing they needed so that they go out to the audience because Tolkien fans are pissed right now with this series, by the way. That was one thing they could go out there and say, look, your Lord and Savior Peter Jackson said that he would consult on this. And then he came out and said recently, it's big in the news. He said, yeah, I said I would, and then you ghosted me. So, yeah. You know. Sons of bitches. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, talk about a woke piece of shit. The new Lord of the Rings looks like that's what exactly what it is. And um, I, I love the Peter Jackson movies. It's probably, I mean, I, it is my favorite trilogy. It really is. I mean, I can go back and watch them anytime. The only problem is the time commitment. Because if you watch the extended versions, I mean, you're talking about what, like a 12, 13-hour movie or something, all said and done? That's, yeah. That's a, that's a lot of time. Um. And just like, you know, Star Wars and just like the Marvel movies and all that, they're steadily ruining that franchise too, or at least they're trying to. But the Tolkien fans are just saying, no, you're not going to ruin our yeah, franchise. Yeah, we we're putting our foot movies. down. We're putting yeah. our hairy elf feet down. <laughs> Hobbit feet. Hobbit. Hairy Hobbit feet. Yeah. <laughs> Um, as an inside joke, the black and white footage of Johnny Bartlett's trial contains many cameos of the crew members in the picture. Um, and they actually said that the reason that looks the way it does, and I thought this was cool, it was just, an, it was just a simple film trick, was that they took the actual raw footage that they filmed, and instead of cleaning it up, they was like, nope, let's just use the footage that we got, and that's why it looks all grainy and, you know, like it looks like it's old-timey footage because it just wasn't processed through anything. Wow. <clears throat> It's a simple trick, but it worked. I mean, um, no other actor besides Michael J. Fox was considered for the role of Frank. Um, they, uh, Peter Jackson and, and Fran Walsh were having a meeting with Robert Zemeckis about the film, and when his name came up, uh, Jackson liked the idea and sent the script to Fox. However, uh, just because he was the only one they considered doesn't mean that other people didn't try for the part. Tom Cruise, oh. Matthew Broderick, Johnny Depp... John Cusack and Danny fucking DeVito 
were all considered for the part if Michael J. Fox hadn't hadn't turned or had turned it down if he had. What the fuck was? So, how did they? How did they even know? <laughs> um. Well, they they were in contention. I don't think they actually tried for it, but those were the ones they were going to go to. Now, can you imagine any of those actors? I mean, it's just like we said before, but Danny DeVito playing, that would have been a totally different version of Frank Bannister. Like, completely Tom Cruise would have been completely different. Matthew Broderick, maybe, because they kind of, they were kind of one and the same around this time era. Comedic sensibility, yeah. Yeah, Johnny Johnny Depp Depp is a no. It would have been too sexy. Tim Burton on this. Yeah, because I mean that at this particular time he wasn't he wasn't as creepy Johnny Depp yet. He was, but no, but he but he was Edward Scissorhands Johnny Depp at that time. Was so, he? That was nineteen ninety six era. I think that was ninety four or something. Oh my it? god! I mean, okay, I, never mind. But yeah, okay, okay. Now it makes sense. I'm thinking he was. I was thinking younger Johnny Depp. I was thinking he was still teen heartthrob oh, Johnny actually, Depp. Edward Scissorhands was the 1990s, so... Okay, you know what? Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> We're old, okay? We're, we know this. 1990, I mean, that was like, what, like 10 years ago? Yeah, it was like four years ago. Let's just... Let's <laughs> I mean, but yeah, I I don't know. I, I read these actors, and I'm like, Danny DeVito? Like, he does like It's like that old Sesame Street thing. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> oh, my God. And I'm just like, he's... Yeah. Um, Michael J. Fox is said to have turned down starring in The Island of Dr. Moreau, the 1996 version, as Edward Douglas to make this film, which is probably a good thing because I hear that that movie was a shit show. So I did, too. They thing. made it seem so interesting in the fucking reviews. And there's a, a podcast I was listening to. Um, oh, my God. That, that briefly discussed on it. And that, apparently that movie was a shit show. Uh, that was the one that had um, Val Kilmer in it, right? Yes. If I remember right, okay. I want to say he had, plays um, Doctor Moreau. Yeah, that he. I mean, this movie didn't didn't get out there, but it's a cult favorite now, and I don't think the Island Doctor Moreau ever got that status. So no. at least he has that to his name. Yeah. Uh, Dee Wallace stars in this movie with Michael J. Fox. At the time of filming, she was married to Christopher Stone, who played a character named Michael Fox in the 1980 movie The Junkman. So that's kind of <laughs> weird. <laughs> um, in order to trick audiences into believing that Patricia Bradley was innocent of the Fairwater murders, Peter Jackson specifically wanted Dee Wallace for the part because everyone knew her at that time as the Elliot's mother in E.T. Yeah, I gave her that softer image. <laughs> <laughs> no what and the funny thing is this probably was the stepping stone for her to be in rob zombies movies because this is the he looked at this and said hell yeah you're going to be in you know three from hell and everything else that i do because you you, you got that craziness i want you so, mind now bitch <laughs> you mind now <laughs> uh when frank's ghost friends attack the linsky residence a mini statue of elvis presley floats in front of ray Peter Dobson, who played Ray, uh, played Elvis in the Forrest Gump movie. I didn't know this till I read this trivia the other day. <laughs> so when you see Lucy's husband, you're seeing Elvis from, you know, the, the from Forrest Gump. And I just remember that part, you know, because Tom Hanks is talking about how no. he's grinding his hips or oh whatever. Oh, my and... God. No, he did not. Oh, my God. I could I could see it now, but that's how funny. <laughs> 
uh, and and Peter Jackson said in the special features that uh, Ray uh, Dobson uh, or, or Peter Dobson was in on it. He said that he loved it. He said that he caught the reference immediately. He's like, yeah, he's like, that's cool because he was a big fan of Elvis. Anyways, that's why he, he was in the original. He was in Forrest Gump because he was such a big fan of Elvis. He kind of like mimicked him all the time. <laughs> um. Now, this is funny. Cirrus's line, nice shooting text during the museum scene was one of Peter Bakeman's lines from Ghostbusters. So, oh, yeah. Go. Ghostbusters reference. Uh, originally, the judge did not vanish from the film after the museum scene. Uh, more scenes were shot of the character after he is cut in half, including him crawling around on his hands in the museum. Uh, Frank meeting him during the cemetery battle in which he would help Frank fight the Reaper, uh, after which he remarks, Gotta hand it to you, Frank. You defeated death itself. And then appearance at the end where he and Rustler the dog say goodbye to Frank and head out west. Uh, and actually, in that scene, they show it in the special features. He's on the back of Rustler the dog, riding him like he's a pony, you know, his upper half. And then, like, his legs are walking off to the east because he said that his, his uh, legs and his uh, upper half have come to an understanding. They're just not cool with each other anymore. Oh, my That's God. What the line was or something. Um, these scenes were cut due to pacing reasons and were not added back in for the director's cut due to insufficient funds to properly finish the effects, but can be viewed on deleted scenes, which that's where I saw them at. Uh, rough. It, it's, it's kind of a funny scene, but it's, you're not missing much. By yeah. Having, I think it's, I think it's actually a better thing for the judge that he dies the way he does. I mean, it gives more sympathy for the character. He's more of a hero, you know, the way he goes out. Roughly 21 minutes into the film, Frank Bannister is eating by the window. If you look closely, he's eating one of the General Mills' famed monster cereals. And, of course, it's booberry cereals, what he's eating. Yes, I saw <laughs> that. I freaked out because, as you know, Reverend, last year, last Halloween season, if you will, uh, they did bring out the original boxes, which you and I, I believe we got all three of them. Um, yes. They are out again. I've seen pictures that... Uh, I've seen pictures that uh, Fruit Brute's out this year, just so you know. I, You know what? I don't know. I did see the original, well, not the original, but the main three, if you will, are already on sale at Sam's Club as a three-pack. I'm, I'm really tempted, but the problem is is my current sugar dilemma. I don't know that I should be eating that anymore, but, uh, yeah. God, I love that cereal so much. Oh, my God. It, it <laughs> is definitely a Halloween staple, something that... I don't know. We get we get at least one box, you know. <laughs> uh, that was my problem in the past. I usually eat like two or three of them before Halloween season was over with. I mean, oh, for uh, shame, pretty nice little treat to come home to. <laughs> uh, Michael J. Fox's character speaks on a cordless phone through a mouth food, a mouthful of food twice. Which is funny, and, and he also does this. He also he looks at his watch during one of the times right after he, he's talking through it, which is exactly what he does in Back to the Future. <laughs> like, it's the exact same thing that he does because he's sitting there because Doc calls him up, and he's like, you know, where you at, Martin? He's like, he's eating, and he he's like, He's like, I'll be right there. You know, he's talking through a mouthful of food, and he looks at his watch real quick. He does in this movie, then I, I know it's deliberate. They were just, it was a callback. And I'm wondering if he um, brought that to the film or if that's something that he, he was directed to do. I think it was both because I get to that in a second, but he also ended both of them was like the phrase I'm on my way, which is the exact same thing he said in both movies. The reason I say that I think that he brought it to it was because they've got scenes of this. He's, he's in the car and he's supposed to be talking to the judge, but every time that he talks to him, he ends his line in doc. 
because he 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 said he didn't know what was wrong with his mind, but he kept uh, conflating the judge with Doc Brown, him, and he kept doing it like yeah. the scenes of him. He's like he's like, why are you doing this, Doc? And then he was like, shit, you know, like he would say it after because he knew what he said. Yeah, so I think that's hilarious. <laughs> Good God! So I think. I think he did bring Back to the Future with him into this. Like, yeah. I, I think they wrote it in, but I think he brought it in with him. It was unintentional, <clears> but <throat> then it became intentional, so. Yeah. Um, the There was a scene, uh, in, in two different scenes, he runs over a white fence. Uh, that is a staple for him as a, as a actor because he crashed through a white fence in, uh, in the Volvo in this, in Back to the Future, he crashes through a white fence in the DeLorean. And in Doc Hollywood, he crashes through a white fence in the Porsche. So apparently that's a running gag for, for him and, and some of these movies. What the hell? <laughs> I don't know. He just don't like white fences, I yeah, guess. And for what re- yeah, I'm like, and for what reason? Like, other than this happened before in this film. I, I don't know. It's just weird. Uh, he performed many of his own stunts in the film. Um, and, and this is, and this is true. Like there's, there's a scene in the movie where he's like the, there's a car that's supposed to be moving that like he, that stops right in front of him and he kind of like jumps on the hood and slides across. He did those scenes. Like he wanted to do the scenes as long as they weren't too, too dramatic because he got used to doing a lot of stunts on back to the future. But the, the, the weird part is, is he broke his foot while filming the forest scene and, and it wasn't a stunt at all. It just happened to be that he, he was, it was dark he didn't know where he was putting his foot. He, he missed, made a misstep, put it in a hole and he twisted his ankle and broke his foot instantly. Ow. So he did all, he did all of these stunts and he ends up breaking his foot by just doing that. Um, his, uh, uh, Peter Jackson said his injury was actually a blessing in disguise because it allowed him to work on the scripts more, which it was like, they need to work on their scripts. So like he, he basically said, okay, you need a few weeks away. And, and, and so we'll give you a break and then they'll give us time to write some more. Uh, and then they added some of the film scenes. Um, uh, but the, the, the scene where Lucy and, and, uh, Ray and, you know, Frank are all at the dinner table and, you know, he's doing that whole thing from ghost. Uh, he, actually his foot was really badly hurt then and that was right before he actually went to the hospital and got it fixed uh completely before they you know took a break and they said he was in that that reason they filmed that scene was because he could sit down during the entire thing and they said he was in intense pain the entire time he was filming that scene ow so that shows how much of an actor he is because you can't really tell that he's you know suffering that much during that scene yeah fucking weird It was during filming this on location in New Zealand that Michael J. Fox made up his mind that he'd had enough of being away from his family and making movies and decided to head back to the small screen and star in Spin City. Uh, this turned out to be his last leading role in a film. He literally was just so far away from his family for so long, he's like, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, I don't blame him. I mean, and it's crazy that working on Spin City was almost like a semi-retirement for him. Yeah, it is kind of crazy, which... Uh, one thing I'll give them on Spin City, they actually had Christopher Lloyd on there, and they had, and it was basically, I mean, they played into the joke of him, you know, and Doc Brown being together again. I thought that I had to give him credit for that because I remember that episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, it At was point, on for six years, Spin City. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, and and he only gave it up, I think, because the Parkinson started getting so severe that he couldn't keep yeah. it from being in the character. I was wondering when that was when that kind of started taking taking over. 
It wasn't. It wasn't in this. I mean, you can see scenes from this, and and and, and if there was any there, it's barely noticeable. I mean, he he is a little spastic with his movements, but he always kind of was. So it's yeah. Like, but I mean, you can really see it in Spin City toward the end because he even started getting that look that he's gotten out where he's kind of like you know, it's unfortunate, but like they get that problem where their face doesn't like you know is not as animated or moves as much as it used to it's kind of got that like you know frozen look to it he he started getting that toward the end of the the tv show um Um, i did not realize that michael j fox is only five foot four yeah he's very short he is super super short short. oh my god like he (laughs) is i used to be five four but then i uh, had kids got fat i don't know um, I've been, I've, the gravity has pulled me down a little bit, so I'm only at five, three on a good day. So I was five, four back as a freshman. Shut school. up. <laughs> no one's talking. Uh, this does not involve you. Uh, at one point, Tim Burton and Sam Raimi were in contention to direct this. Wow. I mean, Tim Burton, Sam 100% could see that. Tim Burton, I could see, but Sam Raimi, I could see more because some of the camera, the way that that uh, Peter Jackson does the camera in this, that it, I could see Sam Raimi doing something similar. The the real quick zoom ins and the way that he, you know, kind of can't sit at weird levels and and all that stuff. That that's it reminded me of Sam Raimi when I was watching it a little bit. I was kind of surprised when I read this. I was like, well, I could see that. If Sam Although Raimi if had-, had directed this, the rated R would have made sense. <laughs> Well, it would have made sense. You would have seen Ted Raimi in it, and, of course, Bruce Campbell would have been in it at one point. Yeah. If, if not, if, if Bruce Campbell would have probably been Frank Bannister, let's be honest. Probably, yeah. Uh, and Johnny Depp would have definitely been Frank Bannister if Tim Burton had directed Oh, this. 100%. You cannot <laughs> not have Victor in the film. And I say that for as many times uh, w- as Johnny if, Depp has uh, played Victor. I wonder if Winona Ryder would have been Lucy in this if he would have directed this. She was pale and she was brunette, so maybe. And she has, I mean, she does see ghosts. I mean, sure, she has in the past because she is strange and unusual, as we know. Oh, shut up. <laughs> uh, one of the two horror movies released in 96 to use Don't Fear the Reaper as the cover. What other movie was that that you would imagine would have Don't Fear the Reaper in it? Scream. Okay. <laughs> what? Oh, no, it was Sweet Dreams by Marilyn Manson. I don't know why I was thinking Don't Fear the Reaper, but Okay. Yeah, um, and they both feature a serial killer disguised as a hooded ghost figure. So there you go. This was the last time a film directed by Peter Jackson was rated R by the MPAA until the extended cut of The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, was released 18 years later. So he actually did get them to uh, give him uh, PG-13 ratings on, you know, The Lord of the Rings and most of The Hobbit films. (laughs) So he figured it out. We've already said that Billy Jackson was in the movie. Is the cute little kid that's smiling in it. Um, Grant Major, the production designer, uh, is uh, Chuck Hughes' obituary photo earlier in the movie. So that Grant Major appears in it. Uh, Peter Jackson's in the movie. Uh, I don't know if you caught his scene, but it's like oh, when yeah. he into the, the punk rocker, biker guy or whatever. Uh, with the rings in his nose. And it's funny because he said that those piercings that he had were made out of just plain pieces of metal that they'd bent to like, you know, yeah. pop in there. And he ended up wearing them most of the day. And he said they were very uncomfortable to oh wear my God. for that long. Yeah. They, they, they had <laughs> even the costume ones that you could buy were not very comfortable. Yeah. And, and, but I mean, these were actually made out of metal that some of like, the people had just bent together and said, here, here you go. Yeah. I can only imagine. Um, 
uh, during Ray Linsky's funeral, you can see Frank Bannister's house burning down in the background, not clearly, uh, but you can see the large orange blur directly behind Lucy. And that was because the film crew uh, uh, was uh, had finished filming there, so they just burnt the thing down because, I mean, they built it, and, and it was a piece of shit anyway, so they just burnt the rest of it down. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, uh, anything else you want to say about this movie before we get on to the, the more somber discussion of the evening the, to round us out here? No, I think you covered just, I've never seen so many fucking like <laughs> trivia points in a movie. You covered a lot. And I think we were able to get our piece in. 